On this week's TripCast, we'll talk about some big names in Texas congressional races, racist texts from a GOP county official, and a leaked Republican Party memo. But before we do, I want to thank today's TribCast sponsors. Raise Your Hand Texas, which is strengthening public education for the future because the future of Texas is in our public schools. More at RaiseYourHandTexas.org. And the Texas Association of Counties. Local government is great, not because it's government, because it's local and connected to the people. Learn more at TexasCountiesDeliver.org. This is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, December 11th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Hello. Associate editor Alexa Ura. Hello. Hello. Politics reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. And Washington Bureau Chief Abby Livingston, who joins us via phone and will be joining us in just a moment. Uh, as always, we'll take questions from our listeners in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do that using the hashtag Tribcast. Um, Before we begin, many of you have heard that I'm departing the Tribune at the end of the year, and after this episode, there is only one more Tribcast left uh, in in 2019, Uh, but the Tribcast is in terrific hands. Alexa Ura, featured here today, will be taking over for us in January. Get your complaints in before that. They won't (laughs) matter come January. Of all the possible next hosts, uh, Alexa is the best combination of um, brilliant and hilarious and also can give Evan and Ross a lot of shit, which was the prerequisite for hiring <laughs> a TribCast host. There you go, Ross. Well, you know, I, I can vouch for it. Great. Uh, she's, <laughs> can, can you put that on my resume? <laughs> yes, please. Uh, so she's an obvious choice, and I know she's going to knock it out of the park, and I cannot wait to listen to her for the next decade of podcasts. You knew you were signing up for it for 10 years, right? I did not realize that was a requirement. (laughs) That's what I get you. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about um, Congress. Uh, It was a week of big names entering Texas congressional races. Um, Let's start with you, Abby, uh, with the latest member of the Bush family uh, entering the political arena. Tell us what we should know. Yeah, so in the Texas 22nd District, which is uh, Sugar Land and some outlaying Houston suburbs, Pierce Bush, son of Neil Bush, Neil Bush is the brother of George W. Bush, Uh, Pierce Bush is running for Congress, which we had been watching him for uh, starting in the late spring of of this past year. Uh, We thought he may run in the Texas 7th, which is West Houston, uh, and that would have been sort of a historical marker because that is the seat former late President George H.W. Bush represented during his time in Congress. But uh, Instead, Pierce Bush uh, took a look at the Texas 22nd. It is an extremely crowded field. There are no assurances he uh, will get through the primary, but he will certainly come to it with a whole lot of name ID. Mm. So was it surprising, Abby, that this was the district that he went for? I mean, given how crowded that field is, obviously he has name ID, but, but were you all surprised by this development? I was initially. Um, I, I would say the Texas 7th made more sense, just given the family background. Um, but it seems like uh, the powers that be uh, in, in Washington and elsewhere are pretty happy with the field there. And so um, I, I think that's the part of the calculation was there was a better opportunity in the Republican primary in the 22nd. Um, I should also note the 22nd, both districts will probably be competed over in the general election. Um, the Texas 7th is currently represented by freshman Congresswoman Lizzie Panel Fletcher. Um, the Texas 22nd is an open seat. The current uh, occupant, Pete Olson, is retiring. 
Um, it's probably a tougher district for Democrats to go after, uh, but they are still going after it. So um, whether or not Pierce Bush is the nominee, I think we'll be tracking it in the fall. Tell us a little bit about Pierce Bush. What's his reputation politically? Like, what do we know about him and his background beyond his family credentials? Well, he's uh, in his early 30s. Uh, I believe he interned for Congressman Culberson, who once represented West Houston. Um, he's a University of Texas graduate, but he spent most of his professional career as the CEO for the Texas State Chapter of Big Brothers and Big Sisters. And he's been pretty passionate about that work. And so I think a lot of the decision to run has been built around um, getting his professional work set and not abandoning that in, in the way he's portrayed it. Got it. All right. And so, Patrick, we also got word of a familiar name in Washington who's about to be running for Mac Thornberry's seat in Texas. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is Ronnie Jackson, the former uh, doctor for the uh, for the president, a former White House doctor and President Trump's one time uh, short lived VA nominee. If you recall last year, his nomination to to lead Veterans Affairs kind of went down in flames amid these allegations of professional misconduct, including uh, abusing alcohol, mishandling uh, prescription drugs. He denied it all, but it nonetheless uh, sunk his nomination. Um, pretty, and, pretty salacious stuff at the moment. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And he was also uh, the physician, uh, also worked in the White House medical unit for previous presidents. He was the physician to President Obama, uh, I should just note. Um, but he also jumps into a very crowded Republican primary. Now, this is unlike the district we just talked about in the Houston area. This one, which is in the Texas panhandle, is one of the most conservative, by some measures, the most conservative or at least the most pro-Trump uh, district in the country. Um, and so this is not a primary where you're going to have to worry about uh, the general election. Uh, in the Republican primary, there are going to be basically no guardrails. What's his, <laughs> There's going to be no limit to how far right you can go. And so it's going to be, again, it's, it's crowded like the 22nd mm -hmm. district one, um, but it's a, a totally uh, different political. Mm -hmm. What's his tie to the district? Yeah, so he is uh, actually a native of, and I may be mispronouncing this. I'm, I'm ashamed to say so. I think it's Leveland. <laughs> it is Leveland, Leveland yeah. which That's is impressive. a city, which is a city about a half hour west of Lubbock, right. uh, which is in Jody Arrington's uh, district, not in the, the district that he's running. Leveland for. is also in Arrington's district. Uh, yeah, correct. Right. Okay. So Thornberry, his tie is from outside the district. I believe he's moving or has moved to Amarillo. Um, and why this is kind of notable is a couple weeks ago, as speculation was mounting about Ronnie Jackson getting into this race, Mac Thornberry, the outgoing incumbent, put out a statement warning against what he described as kind of outsider candidates, out-of-district candidates coming in and running in the district. He made a specific reference in that statement to folks from the, quote, Lubbock region. I think it was pretty clear who he was referring to. He also made a reference to folks from the um, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Say there's there's another guy, yeah. major candidate in that race, Chris Ekstrom, mm -hmm. um, who is originally from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I think he's now in Wichita Falls. Um, but, you know, clearly Thornberry, I think, was trying to, uh, you know, try to clear the field of some of these candidates from outside the district. It hasn't really worked so far. Isn't that a fairly common thing on the congressional level? It is. I mean, yeah, we have these debates every single cycle right. in these districts <clears throat> where, um, you know, people move in, they see the opportunity, um, especially if they have the money or the name idea or just the, the political ca capital resources to do so. So it's, it's not totally uncommon at all. Yeah, you have um, to live in the state. You don't have to live in the district on the right. congressional level. Mm -hmm. right. right. And it's, it's already come up in right. the, you mentioned Pierce Bush right. uh, does not right. live right. in this 22nd district. He says he plans to move in soon. But one of his candidates within a couple hours of Pierce Bush officially launching his campaign 
Uh, one of his rivals, Greg Hill, put out a statement hitting him on that. Uh, you know, Greg Hill's from, I think, from Brazoria County, and he put out a statement saying, you know, like, West Houston isn't, you know, the, how could these people from West Houston, you know, uh, know what it's like out here in the far reaches of the 22nd district, which, mm -hmm. you know, if you're familiar with that area, West Houston is kind of like a bit of a, right. maybe a New York values kind of slur. <laughs> fancy, fancy. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it seems like a different matter if it's, you know, like lives across the street, you know, from right. the district or lives 250 miles from the district. You know, they seem to be a little yeah. bit different issues. I don't know if carpet bagging plays harder in rural districts. You know, if you're in Amarillo and your rep is from Dallas, that may be different from you're in Houston and your rep is from West Houston. Right. right. The, the thing that I actually find most weird about this story is, so Barack Obama's doctor was a Republican? He's I mean, a Republican now. <laughs> he's well, running he's a Republican now. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, if this is, you said this is like one of the state's most conservative, most reliably conservative districts. So I'm assuming that means it's a reliably far right district. Like, I mean, it, was this guy always a Republican? Like, you know, during Obamacare, was the president's doctor a Republican it's, who... It's weird that you're asking if, you know, was they, were not, they not sufficiently polarized up there? <laughs> I know. Well, you'd think, like, you know, don't you get to pick whichever doctor you want to be your doctor? Right. Um, I don't know his full political history. I mean, I don't think he was out for actively campaigning either way as White House doctor. Um, but it's funny you mentioned that because that other candidate in the race that I mentioned, Chris Ekstrom, uh, very shortly after Ronnie Jackson filed his paperwork, Chris Ekstrom put out a statement welcoming, quote, President Obama's doctor, <laughs> right, Ronnie see? Jackson, Told to the race and putting out a statement saying, reminding everyone of all the terrible things, reminding Republican voters of all the terrible things that happened under Obama and basically saying this guy was, you know, at his side the entire time. Gosh. But yeah. he was like taking My his temperature <laughs> and giving yeah. him a flu exactly. shot. Right. Right. Or <laughs> so, yeah, that's already, yeah, however disingenuous, you know, it's already, already, you know, being weaponized. My next them, career right? will be in opposition <laughs> research. Thank you very much. Uh, speaking of opposition research, Abby, uh, you had a great story yesterday about the trouble Democratic candidates in Texas, and there are quite a few of them this particular cycle, are having staffing up. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we, we had uh, written about this before um, in 2018, but this was, the, the problem has escalated. And what has happened, uh, Democrats can thank their favorite person in the world for this, uh, former House Majority Leader Tom DeLay. Um, Back in 2003, you know, he led the effort to redraw the lines, and a number of Democratic congressional incumbents were thrown out of office along with their staff. Um, and ever since then, between then and about 2017, it's been just a very difficult place for any ambitious Democratic political operative to find work. Not impossible, and there's plenty of talented people in the state who were able to hang around and build a career, but many, many political um, up-and-comers have left Texas, and they went and ran campaigns campaigns in places like Nevada, Ohio, Virginia, Connecticut. And so you've got this, um, now suddenly there are campaigns at every level. There's 30 state legislative races, possibly more, um, you know, nine congressional races, possibly, um, a Senate campaign. And not only are these races happening, but they're competitive primaries. So there's multiple Democratic candidates running in these places, along with the presidential contest. Uh, and so candidates are really, really stressed out. They're, they're eyeing um, specific talent, talent Certain people get hired for campaigns and candidates are a little bit jealous. Um, they don't know where to find qualified people. And so there's a there's a real sense of if you can get a 22-year-old who may not be from Texas and has never worked in politics to do a pretty highly skilled job, you're lucky. 
Um, and so a number of organizations in the state and nationally are trying to train and help professionalize newcomers to politics. There's a number of people in the post-Trump era, uh, or I mean in the Trump era, who have decided to get involved on the Democratic side. And so it's, it's a, as I wrote in my story, it's a high-class problem for Democrats to have, given how there were so few opportunities, but it's still a problem. Yeah. And who are sort of the hottest tickets? Like who are potential um, campaign staffers who are coming off of national campaigns who would be a big draw in Texas? Well, the number one uh, operative who folks spoke about in my story, and it may have just been the timeliness of it because it was right when Senator Kamala Harris dropped out, uh, was a field organizer named Emmy Ruiz, who's based in Austin, but really made her name in Nevada politics. And so, um, you know, I don't know where she's going. I'm sure every presidential campaign is trying to get her. Um, but the folks back in the state are very, very hopeful. She she turns her, her forces on Texas and uh, helps move it in that direction. But this is a pretty serious problem. It's a growing pain. It'll probably abet in the future, but only if they win. Yeah. Great. Uh, okay. And uh, Patrick, uh, I want to ask you, I'm hoping that you've sort of finally put to bed the speculation that Beto O'Rourke might still challenge John Cornyn for U.S. Senate. You and Abby had a great story on that this week based off of a text exchange, I think, with him. Right. And, and we knew as, you know, I think a lot of folks knew as soon as he dropped out of the presidential race that this speculation that he could still run for Senate again would persist up until the filing deadline. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it did, basically. Um, there were a few things that kind of stoked it along the way. Earlier, I think last week, there was a poll released by a group uh, led by a Beto O'Rourke supporter that showed that he'd be the strongest candidate against uh, Cornyn. That kind of ramped up the speculation. Um, and as a result of that, we you know, checked in with him one more time. I think it was on Thursday evening when he got back to us. You know, hey, you know, we know that you've said a million times you're not running for Senate. Um, you know, you got four days to the filing deadline, giving this any new consideration. And he said, no, not, not running for Senate. Nothing's changed on my end. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that wasn't necessarily shocking. But as I said, that speculation was always, I think, going to be there up through the filing deadline. What's been a little more interesting is to see uh, in recent days how he's engaged in down ballot races in Texas. By all appearances, it looks like he's going to be a very active player um, in the fight for the state house. He's made some uh, endorsements in state house races. Um, he has a former advisor who made a, a late entrance into a congressional race in Houston um, just a couple days ago with hours to go before the filing deadline. He's backing her. Um, so right now, um, short of running statewide again in Texas, it looks like he's going to be an active player uh, down ballot in Texas, um, which, you know, makes makes sense. I mean, you, you, he'll be able to build up a lot of goodwill um, with the party establishment that I think he just did not have going into his Senate race in 2018. And it'll position him well for, you know, if he wants to run uh, statewide again, whether it's in 22, 24, 26, whatever. I mean, you've got to think he has a pretty solid email list that has of a course, set yeah. of voters that aren't actually, you know, crazy diehard state house voters that are engaged at that level at Absolutely. a minimum. Yeah. Did you get any sense that him or that the prospect that he might get in was holding back donors or support for any of the other candidates? I mean, these other, I guess it's 12 candidates finally at the end on the Democratic right. side in the Senate race have been, you know, nobody seems to have got real traction yet. I mean, a couple of them are, you know, yeah. coming around, but, you know, I wonder if the Beto speculation kept people from looking at the other candidates. I think that it's kind of always looming over them and manifesting itself in different ways. Um, you know, we noted this in our story, but it was kind of interesting. Like the, the, the current democratic field is pretty slow to file. A lot of them didn't really file until the 
final several days of the filing period. I'll, I'll leave it up to them to explain that. But mm-hmm. And there was no like big filing events that they did, which you would sometimes expect in a um, big statewide race like this. You know, invite reporters to the Texas Democratic Party headquarters to see or sign the paperwork. Right. It was they're kind of keeping come feel you the know, excitement. Like, yeah, right. not trying to draw too much attention to it. Um, and so you can read into that what you want if they were maybe still kind of waiting to see if uh, O'Rourke was going to get in at the last minute or whatever. Um, but you know. We're now moving forward. I was at a, a forum last night where Chris Bell, one of the candidates, got up and said, you know, like, you know, we love Beto, but, uh, you know, like he didn't file this. We need to get down to business in this race. It was very much like a kind of a, right. a pep speech, pep rally kind of speech where it's like, all right, like that cloud has been lifted. We need to. Now move. will you talk to me? Now, yeah, right. now, yeah, now you vote for me. Yeah. <laughs> it was interesting. I thought, uh, Abby, I thought, you know, it was interesting to see preemptively some of the Democrats in the Senate race, basically, like, even though Beto has never hinted that he might run, basically saying, you know, you better not, you better not. I think Royce West was one of those, right? Yeah. And I think it was, it's an undercurrent. I mean, just financially, but everything, it's just diminished their candidacies. I mean, and, and whether they can come out of the shadow um, I think is going to be the question of the next few months, but there's not a lot of time ahead of the primary. But um, I can say under the surface, there were a lot of supporters of these candidates who were extremely frustrated with this continued narrative. And I'm not sure what O'Rourke could have done to tamp it down, but it was um, there were there were people who were extremely frustrated with this. All right. Well, Abby, we are going to say farewell to you and we are going to uh, thank a couple more TripCast sponsors before our next section here. Fort Worth-based BNSF Railway, which employs more than 9,400 people in Texas with an annual payroll exceeding $1 billion. And Educate Texas, which stimulates creative solutions to key educational challenges throughout the state. Learn more at edtx.org. Okay, so the GOP has been having some race relations challenges in Texas the last couple of weeks, with the most recent example being a state lawmaker dropping out of his reelection for suggesting his primary opponents were running because they're Asian. That was the topic of last week's TribCast. Uh, This week we are moving on to Galveston (laughs) County. Uh, Patrick, tell us uh, about your story there. Yeah, so this episode was first reported over the weekend by the Galveston Daily News, and they reported on this text uh, that had become uh, public, I believe it's months old text, but it was a, a text uh, sent by the Galveston County Republican Party chairwoman, Yolanda Waters, um, using a, a shortened version of the N-word to refer to a uh, state Republican executive committee member, a local state Republican executive committee member who is black. Someone it, she was basically accusing of being lazy and then exactly, using that yeah, term. Exactly, in the context yeah. of kind of, it, basically someone, the screenshot of the text that released mm. kind of venting about him asking for money, not doing the work that she expected him to mm-hmm. do, that kind of thing. Um, you know, she identifies, or at least in a statement that she provided, she identifies as, I think she's a Latina slash African American, mm-hmm. um, but was really kind of caught my attention and made this a really kind of statewide story is how quickly we saw statewide Republican officials react to this mm-hmm. after the Galveston Daily News story or as a, a part of the initial publication of the story. Um, you had the state party chairman, James Dickey, denounce her, say she should resign. You had a spokesman for the governor denounce it. Um, you had uh, Land Commissioner George P. Bush very shortly after the story was published say she needs to apologize and resign. Then I think the next day or the next day or two, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said basically the same thing. Um, and I think it just you know illustrates um, you know how sensitive they've become to these controversies and trying to get ahead of them and kind of you know stamp them out. I don't I don't think she has 
haven't checked with her recently. I don't think she has any plans to resign. Mm -hmm. She's not caving to the pressure yet. Um, but we'll see. We'll see where it goes. Alexa, like you've written about this uh, some in the aftermath of the El Paso shooting. Why? Why are state leaders suddenly reacting so quickly to these types of statements when they didn't in the past? I because perhaps because there is an election in less than a year. I mean, I, I don't. You know. I don't know that we would be seeing these reactions in 2014, even in 2016, when the political landscape was beginning to shift. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, Republicans are navigating how to talk to an electorate that they weren't necessarily ready to deal with yet, or maybe didn't imagine they'd be dealing with at this point. Like if you look at a lot of the competitive or, you know, quote unquote, battleground districts at the house level, those districts were not drawn to be competitive. They, the numbers have caught up with them to some extent when it comes to, you know, the amount of demographic change since 2010, when those numbers that were used to draw them were compiled. But I also think that you have seen a different electorate. I mean, the 2018 style presidential level electorate, that's very different than what we see in that type of election. And by all intents and purposes, I mean, 2020 is going to be a supercharged version of that because you've got all of the non-traditional voters who don't really come out combined with this newfound electorate. And I think a lot of this is reflective of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm reluctant to draw, to you know, like extrapolate too much from these two episodes, but I find it's notable if you just look at these two episodes. This is dealing with how they, they address and refer to people within their own party. Right. This is before you even get to how, you know, Texas Republicans are going to deal with issues of diversity and race when their back is against the wall in, right. you know, a fight against a Democrat. Right. Um, again, don't want to draw too much from these two episodes, but I just find it's notable. This is, you know, the Rick Miller situation, this situation. This is intra-party. Yeah, uh, but I think these instances also highlight issues with constituencies they do have to deal with, right? When Sid oh, Miller course, yeah, was comparing refugees to, what was it, rattlesnakes way right. back when, nobody said anything. But in this case, you know, we're talking, in the Rick Miller case, we're talking about Asian voters in a district in with a lot of Asian voters. And in this case, we're talking about, you know, black Republicans, a number that we know that they have struggled with, at least when it comes to getting people in leadership positions. I think they're, the other demographic that they're also moving for is young people and young Republicans who don't see race the same way their elders do. And you've got to talk to your entire Republican audience. I mean, they, they do have diversity problems, and they've talked about those internally and to some extent externally. But they've also got a rising part of the electorate that they would ordinarily expect to be on their side who's, who doesn't see these issues the same way, you know. Well, you just mentioned uh, discussions that Republicans are having internally. Uh, you had a smart column this week that was based off of a Texas Republican Party memo that was leaked to the Dallas Morning News that revealed some of the sort of internal thinking of the party. Uh, what uh, what were among the things that we learned? Well, you know, it tells you what they're worried about. I mean, the diversity thing, as the Democrats have positioned it, is you know, kind of how they put it in the memo, uh, is, is one of the things they're worried about. I, I think a lot of this stems from the closeness of the statewide races in particular, but also the legislative races in the 2018 election. Mm -hmm. You can um, be a lot sloppier if you're winning by 20 points than if you're winning by five. And, and I think they're trying to button some of this up. They have 12 Democratic targets. The surprising, not surprising thing there is that they are the 12 Democrats who defeated Republican incumbents um, or got Republican open seats in the 2018 election. So they're going after those sophomores um, they're going after, uh, they're talking about 
the polarizing nature of the president um, from their own party and and trying to, you know, deal with that in their elections. How the, do they deal with that in their well, elections? Well, you know, they talked about it. They, you know, they didn't really spell didn't out the how. <laughs> details of, of what they're going to do, but they did, you know, say that it was a concern and it was something that candidates need to get in front mm-hmm. of and think about. Uh, the diversity of the party, as we've said, uh, they had some, you know, it's interesting, voter turnout issues have mostly been Democratic issues for the past couple of decades in Texas, mostly because they didn't have as many voters showing up, so it was a major concern. We need more people. And more people showed up, as Alexa said, in 2018, and now the Republicans are talking about voter turnout and getting people out to vote. And the other thing that I thought was interesting, since it was a Republican issue to get rid of straight ticket voting, was that they're worried about getting voters from the first race at the top of the ticket all the way down to, you know, the state house, the state senate, county judges, judges, you know, local judges, local JPs, all of that kind of stuff. They're having some of the same sort of fretting and, and, and worries that the Democrats are about straight ticket voting. So why did the legislature do this if everyone is worried about it? You know, most states have gotten rid of straight ticket voting. It's got real problems. Um, it's discriminatory, mm-hmm. depending on how you, how you do it. Um, and, you know, people can still vote a straight ticket. They just can't vote it in one punch. Mm-hmm. So you could still go down the ticket and vote for every single person from the party that you want, um, but you just can't do it at one thing at the top. I think we're down to six or seven states. Yeah, and, it's a handful and at this point. the reason the legislature did it was because they were starting to lose um, elections in the cities, uh, losing their judges and all of those kinds of things that, you know, feed the court system. And they were starting to lose them and starting to get uh, threatened in the suburbs. And it was a suburban legislator from the Dallas area, Ron Simmons, who carried the legislation this time. Um, a lot of Republicans in other parts of the state were saying, no, 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 wait, that's how we all got elected. But it prevailed. Yeah, I mean, I think there are two big questions about the effect of straight ticket voting in the 2020 election. Does it actually solve, does it go as far as solving these concerns Republicans were having in Harris and Dallas and all of these blue-leaning places? You know, I don't know that there's any sort of test case for how many people are actually going to get to the bottom of those ballots that are incredibly long. And I think the second part of this is if people are continuing to vote down ballot at the same rates, how much longer does that take a right. person to get through the ballot? What does that mean for the line itself, for the folks still trying to get into the polling place? And neither of these things are tested at this point. I mean, this really just seems like a total wild card heading mm-hmm. into this election cycle. Um, I mean, I'm sure behind the scenes, Republicans, Democrats maybe have done studies or some kind of analysis trying to game this out. But in terms of the body of work that's available publicly, um, this really seems like uncertain territory. And I think, honestly, I thought that was... You know, I don't think it was shocking, but I thought that was one of the bigger headlines right. out of that memo is just the acknowledgement of, you know, we need to, we need to have some plan to deal with this. Yeah. And we obviously heard about it in the, the Bonin secret recording, Bonin right. or Bonin mm-hmm. or Michael Quinn Sullivan expressing anxiety uh, about the end of straight ticket voting. I, I really do think it's a probably the biggest wild card of this election. They, they have 40-plus states they can look at and say, how's it working over there? I mean, you right, know, yeah. I right. mean it's, I, I agree yeah, with you that they're all fretting plus... about it, and it's the way we've always done it and who moved my cheese and all those things. Most but, of you those 40-plus states are a fraction of the size. Mo- of the yeah, they side. don't have a Harris well, County or a Dallas County. Yeah, they do. They've got California. They've got L.A. County. They've got Yeah, you know, but when you're talking Nassau about county, the bulk of those county, of those states, they don't have the sort of electorate and or size of counties that we have in the concentrated They've got other big states they could look to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I think just to 
say what just I guess say what Alexa said. That's which the is most like, of it too. Totally, a totally overlooked point is is again the uh, additional time this is going to add to people in the you know. In to me, that's the scariest like aspect County of all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. I think that's the, so long. Or we don't get the election the results in Harris County until three in the morning anyway. Like you know, what is this? I think about the time it takes to vote straight ticket versus the time it takes to check all those boxes. It's like at least four or five times the you know the weight in the booth. So what does this mean? Are counties prepared for this? You know, are there more uh, elections officials? Are there more, you know, s spots set up to vote? Yeah, I mean, I've talked to county officials who have said, you know, we don't know what the effect of the loss of straight ticket voting combined with the use of new machines mm -hmm. in a presidential with a presidential electorate is going to look like. Right. These are voters who probably didn't vote in the constitutional and haven't used the new machines that Dallas and Bear County have gotten. And so there is also going to be a bit of a learning curve, even just with the equipment. And so I, I think. There were always going to be long lines in 2020, and I think this is going to probably make that worse. All right, well, on that uplifting note, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to Raise Your Hand Texas, BNSF Railway, Educate Texas, and the Texas Association of Counties, our sponsors this week. An extra special thanks, as always, to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Ross, Alexa, Patrick, Abby, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Regina, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. <laughs>